Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hi, everyone. This is Ben. Today on the show, we have Miles Clark. Miles grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, playing mostly basketball. Then finally, at 18, he started skiing. His academic background includes graduating from UC Berkeley with a degree in molecular cell biology in 2001. Then he took the MCATs. Then he decided not to pursue medical school. Miles moved to Tahoe and started, quote, ski bumming, and he has yet to look back since. He now continues to ski and is the founder of Snowbrains.com. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Miles. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So let's first of all address the elephant in the room. And so you graduate with a degree in molecular biology from UC Berkeley, which is considered one of the better schools for that discipline in the entire nation. And then you take the MCATs. Okay, we're on a pretty natural progression still. And then you bail on medical school and start ski bumming. What were you thinking? You can imagine how excited my family was. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I first made this move, it was uh, not, not, a, not a shunning or anything like that, but definitely uh, a lot of head scratching. Mm-hmm. So um, I was on the ski team at Berkeley during college, uh, but I was one of the guys that didn't ski. So I guess it's liberal for me to say that. <laughs> but I, I used the cheap pass and I used the cheap place to stay to powder ski. And there was a few of us that did that, and that was a lot of fun. And it was very traditional after you graduated to spend one season at the ski team cabin and just ski, you know, while you finished your applications or did some more testing. You know, most everybody had aspirations of going on to be doctors and lawyers and whatnot in graduate school. And so I did the same thing. And I realized after one season of living in Tahoe and having a full season, my first ever full season, wow, I got a lot better at this. Maybe I should do another season. (laughs) And with the MCAT, you get three years, I think. It's a three-year period where that score is valid. Mm-hmm. And so the next year, I thought, oh, I'll do one more season. And then, uh, you know, of course, after one more season, I thought, oh, I'm so smart. I'll just, I'll just take the test again and get an even better score. And of course, I never took it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you started skiing at 18, Russell said. And they say that snowboarding is harder to learn, easier to master. And skiing is easier to learn, harder to master. But based on some of the videos I've been watching, it looks like you've pretty much mastered skiing. <laughs> Did you have any trouble with that? You know, I skied a couple of days as a kid. Then I didn't ski at like maybe one day a year from, I don't know, 10 to 13. Mm-hmm. And in high school, I didn't, didn't ski at all because of basketball. But those couple of days when I was a kid, it was just my favorite thing. You know, it's all I would talk about and just the thing I wanted to do. So as soon as I turned 18, I moved to a little mountain town in Bend, Oregon and uh, started skiing as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And I just really got hooked on it. And yeah, I don't know. I, I think that I don't know. Yeah, I guess people do say it's it's easy to pick up, but then hard to master. For me, I just I just wanted it so bad, you know. And I think I have I know a lot of people that love skiing and, and put a lot of energy into it. And especially, I think with a little bit of distance I got in the ski industry, it was really just just that I wanted it. I'll tell friends that even too. It's like you know, man, I just I wanted it more. So I think I put a I put a lot of time into it, and and that really was my goal was just to get as far as I could. A mastery is maybe a bold statement, but I really just wanted to take it as far as I possibly could and see where it goes. And 
initially being a ski bum was enough, but then I wanted more. You know, I wanted sponsors. I wanted to see if I could get paid and you know, see if I could get into movies and magazines. And, and that was really my, my push. It's the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. If you, <laughs> if you spend enough time doing something, you're going to get good at it. And you better believe when I read that book, I got a little piece of paper out and started doing the <laughs> <laughs> Something that happened to you, I felt like I had a similar experience. You were in college, you were on this track, and I felt the same way with engineering, but then you decided to go out and change your lifestyle completely. Were you worried about the judgments of your classmates and you see them becoming doctors? Uh, you're in your 30s now, so I'm sure that they are. How does that feel to you? It's complicated, you know, and I think what you're getting at and what, what I felt, I've had some deep feelings of insecurity. I think insecurity is definitely the word. As I'm 35 now, a lot of my friends I'm in school with, most all of them are doctors, are lawyers, are you know the high-level professionals with families and wives and children and you know, security, more or less. And I've, I've been able to fight it off pretty well. There was a period in my life about five years ago where I was actually living in, in Bariloche, Argentina, waiting for the snow to arrive. And I was there for about three months with no snow. And uh, I had a hard time sleeping at night. That really had gotten to me at that point. I was, I was a little bit in debt. I didn't know what I was going to do next. My fallback has always been, oh, I'll go back to medical school. I'll take the MCAT and return to that kind of zone in life. And then my other fallback was public health school. Berkeley has a really good public health school. So I've, I've had some interest in international public health. If I could travel, or maybe I could satisfy my desire to get out there. But yeah, it all, it all kind of came ahead that summer, and man, it was rough. I've, I've never had anything like that. And what really spoke to me was I was, I was in Bariloche for three months with no snow, and the first day the ski resorts opened and I went skiing, I slept like a baby, and that was it. <laughs> I never had any problems again. So kind of interesting. But yeah, it, that is a difficult situation, I think, sometimes. But uh, my family really, maybe all families, want you to be successful. So when I first walked away from the medical career, they were pretty upset and, and not as responsive as they usually are. But then when I made it into something successful, when I became a professional skier and started mountain guiding and, and making it into something, they started to see that I was happy, I could make some money doing this, and you know it was quote-unquote successful. Yeah, exactly. And ideally, success is measured by happiness. So congratulations on your success. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> so you become a professional free skier in 2004. And Russell and I have learned you know, that the word professional in this industry is a nebulous term. So what exactly were you doing as a professional skier? And was that sustaining your life? Or were you doing kind of other jobs to complement that? Yeah, professional, especially in skiing, is a very nebulous term. So I've always, I've always decided, though, because a lot of skiing is selling yourself. If I don't call myself a professional... Nobody else will, right? <laughs> but uh, basically, in 2004, I started making a little bit of money. You know, I, got, I was getting travel budgets from, uh, from ski companies, and they were helping me travel. And what I was doing at that time was uh, a little company called Adventure Filmworks, who was my very good friend, Dwayne Kubishta, who I went to Berkeley with and was on the ski team with. And he, uh, <clears throat> he had a master's in mechanical engineering from Berkeley and did the same thing. He lived with me, and we ski-bummed together. <laughs> in uh, the west shore of Lake Tahoe for three winters. So that was, uh, was kind of what got me started. And then as it, it had just kind of you know, snowballed as a generic perfect term for skiing, right? <laughs> it kind of snowballed from there. You know, I just kept chipping away at sponsors. And, and what, what's been great now is most of the companies I work with now, I've been working with for a long time. So for the last little while now, I have been able to make about enough money to not work for six months a year. 
from uh, skiing. And a lot of that's travel budgets, but it's cool because so this year, for example, I spent 14 weeks on the road skiing, about 10 weeks in Japan and four in Alaska. And so when my sponsors come through and you know, give me travel budgets for this, you know, that's, that's 14 weeks right there that I don't have to pay for because they generally, you know, we work out a system where they pay for everything during that time period. Yeah, so it really seems like you found the formula for how to make this life work for you. And this wasn't something that you were really searching for. Uh, We were talking before the show, and it seems like it kind of found you. Could you tell the listeners that story? It did, and that that might be the most serendipitous thing that's happened to me yet. To rewind a tiny little bit, so in January, I think it was 2009, I chased a girl Mm. to South America. (laughs) girl that I was madly in love with. She was fantastic, still a great person. She decided, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to South America for 12 months. And uh, she didn't even invite me. So I don't know, it was just gnawing at me. I think, I think I was 30 years old at the time or 29. And I really wanted to do a big trip right around the age of 30. So I chased her down there, did a month in Colombia, did a month in uh, Brazil, ended up in Argentina for six months in total. And that's where I had that insecurity, the first three months mm-hmm. of being in Bariloche with uh, more or less nothing to do. And that winter, I got invited to the Las Leñas free skiing competition. And it was the first time they'd had that competition in a long time. And so I was really honored, and it was cool because they paid for my bus ticket and free food and a free place to stay. So there was, it was a no-brainer. And when I got there, there was all these people I knew from Squaw Valley, California there. And I thought, wow, what's going on here? And one of them was Jackie Peso, a very amazing professional skier now. And she informed me what was going on is this website – unofficial networks that was paying these people to go down there and do all this stuff. And they had this big investor. So my ears perked up and I thought, well, wow, I want to be a part of this. So I uh, was able to get uh, in touch with the investor and get in touch with Tim Conrad, the guy that owned the website, all very cool people. And they just kind of told me what was up and I offered them my services. I said, hey, I write. I'm in Patagonia. I'd love to work for you guys. So the investor hired me on for a couple articles. uh, And then I guess long story short or short story long, I ended up working the next winter in Tahoe, was the 2010 winter, pretty much for free. I was making helmet cam videos, doing a lot of conditions reports. It was a great season, so it was mostly you know, my helmet cams of me jumping off cliffs as well. <laughs> and that did well. You know, a lot of the things they were trying on that website weren't catching, but people really, they just wanted to know about Squaw. It was a California audience, and they wanted to know about Squaw. You know, if you tell them a story about Antarctica... That's only so cool, you know, because they can't relate to that. You know, I'm a a guy in San Francisco. I'm not going to Antarctica, but I go to Squaw, you know, and I know that line and that's cool. And so that snowballed, uh, again, to use that cheesy word, that that evolved into me being hired as editor-in-chief of that website in October uh, 2010. So that's got to be a really exciting time in your life. I mean, you you really start to feel these things getting traction and you realize, okay, it's not just going to be about the skiing anymore. There are other ways where I can still live, you know, the skier lifestyle and still be associated with the industry, but I don't need to worry about turning 40 years old and not really be able to professionally ski anymore. Yeah, exactly. That's that's very much true. And what I didn't articulate well, and that is that uh, this trip to Argentina was a terrible idea. (laughs) I I chased a girl down there on a whim I ended up, you know, almost losing my mind for three months at Bariloche with no skiing. And then I ended up, I think it was like, for me as a lot, you know, I was like $7,000 in debt at the end of this trip. I'd just been spending money. I didn't, didn't have a job this whole time. Then just randomly, serendipitously, luckily, I ran to these guys doing this unofficial networks thing. And, 
ended up with a job pretty much out of it, you know, pretty quickly. Amazing how those things come to flourish, huh? <laughs> yeah, and that was my that's my first real job. You know, I, I worked for the Department of Health Services in college and just after college, but they paid terribly because it's you know government. <laughs> um, these guys these guys paid pretty well, and I got to go skiing every day, and then I got to write, which were two of my favorite things to do. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm really fascinated with people that come from squat too because they have this like community that i totally don't understand uh there was a book written by shane mcconkey i think or is it squallywood is that what it's it called is. have you ever participated in that what is that exactly yeah that's a that's a big deal for us um so it's the kind of the first and only uh guide to a ski resort so basically they're they're showing the challenging lines at squaw valley and how to execute them and how many points they're worth basically and then what's even more famous than Squallywood now, maybe, because it's you know, grown legs of its own, is NAR. You've heard of NAR, the game and the movie? I course, believe yeah. we have, yeah. NAR is basically a point system, you know? So you get X amount of points for skiing the chimney, per se, at, at Squaw Valley. And then you'd get more points if you skied it naked. The you'd BNs, get, get, that's what they call them. Right, but, but yeah, naked. naked. And then you'd get, you'd get more points if somebody threw a snowball at you or if you were talking to your mother on the telephone. A lot of it's very fun, but the lines are very real. So it's cool. It's this cool mixture of... Uh, goofiness and seriousness uh, in, in the skiing world yeah definitely and i mean creative ideas like nar and like these other things you did with unofficial networks you were able to do them so well you were telling us before the interview that you took it from thirty thousand page visits mm. per month to millions yep how are you able to think of these creative ideas to get people to go and check out your site yeah i mean i, mean, I think you guys are being very generous right now. Um, I'm not sure how creative it is. I think it's maybe coming back to what you said, that you don't understand the Squaw Valley thing, <laughs> that weird community. And I can't say I do either. You know, after you know, almost 13 years of, of skiing at Squaw, it's, there's something about it, man. People flip their lids for Squaw Valley. And California has more skiers than any other state. You know, it, we're the most populous state, so that might be easy to achieve. But people lose it for Squaw, man. And there's a lot of history. You know, we've got Scott Schmidt and we've got Tom Day and the Gaffneys and, you know, obviously Shane McConkey and C.R. Johnson and J.T. Holmes and Timmy Dutton. And it's just legendary, you know, legendary skiers. It's kind of a legendary place because of what the skiers were able to do and what the skiers were able to do in other places. You look what Shane McConkey did in Alaska, per se. And uh, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, his training ground was squad. And that makes people from Vermont, you guys, how many friends have you guys had move out there from the East Coast? Everyone that likes skiing is gone. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Except me, apparently. I don't know what happened. When I meet people, new people at Squad, they're always like, oh, where are you from? And I I tell them, and then I I just say, and you're from Vermont, right? They're like, how'd you know? (laughs) It sounds similar to the infatuation that some Western Pennsylvanians have for Seven Springs, although I think the geography might be a little different. Maybe a little different, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, let's talk about what you have going on today uh, because you've now Snowbrains.com uh, as a result of what happened at Unofficial Networks. Could you talk about Snowbrains? Yeah, definitely. And so the long story is I did this terrible idea to South America and ended up with Snowbrains, really, mm-hmm. because uh, after you know Unofficial, the, the investor pulled out and they kind of had to lay everyone off and I started Snowbrains. And uh, it's been great. I really liked what Unofficial had going. It was fun to have control there. And then now with Snowbrains, having full control is very fun. So what, what we're trying to do is just differentiate ourselves from everyone else, trying to have intelligent, positive, original content. And that's kind of our, our motto right now. And so we just started having advertisers come onto the site and recording some others. 
that uh, we're excited to work with in the fall, uh, which is how you make money on a website. Mm-hmm. People don't know that. It's, uh, it's, it's challenging probably to make money on a website, but that's the main thing. You get people to come on and advertise with you, and you might put some of their content on your site. And it's just really exciting that I came from this strange trip to South America, and here I am now with my own website, and it's starting to work. We made a little bit of money last year and hopefully make a little more this coming year and hire some more interesting people. And, but yeah, we really want to sort of stick to that positive, intelligent, original. And that's what the advertisers and people we talk to, uh, locals and, and people in the cities too, yeah. uh, they like that originality that, that maybe some other sites lack. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask how you plan to differentiate yourself and you explained that very eloquently. I also, just for our listeners, I saw snowbrains.com is basically an all-inclusive suite for snow lovers, right? So you can get the news, entertainment, weather conditions, and then also that positive original content that you were talking about. So other than that, I mean, you're running Snowbrains, and so that must be a pretty busy job. How are you able to fit skiing into that? You know, I think... uh... I think this happens to a lot of people where they have a lifestyle. You know, my lifestyle is very important to me. I want to be able to go skiing or surfing pretty much every single day. And I think a lot of people lose that. So the, the original idea was, all right, Snowbrains is cool because I get to go skiing every day and then I work <laughs> at night. But, you know, that doesn't always work out that way. And when I first started, I had a broken kneecap and my mom was ill. So I was staying home because the, the website's only a year old now. We started, uh, technically started in March, but launched it in April of 2013. And I was, I was maybe working 15 hours a day on it to start. You know, I, had, I couldn't ski, I couldn't do anything, and I was overly focused and overly working. But now I've been able to kind of trim it back and I have people helping me. My partner, Eric Bryant, who's the web guy, and, and my other friend, James Yim, who's our business guy, does a lot of help. And people have really reached out to us. It's been great. People write us conditions reports and interesting editorials and funny articles. So it's starting to get a little bit of momentum now. So now it's, I'm hopefully working more like four or five hours a day uh, on, the, on the right day. And, and then I can ski. So I can wake up in the morning. I can uh, do a little bit of work. I can ski all day, come home, and finish my work in the evening. Yeah, it seems like the only thing you're missing in this is a podcast. So <laughs> I'm glad that we're here to fill the void. Uh, it's almost, it almost feels too revealing. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for explaining your business. Ben and I are kind of new in this business venture, and so we're going to need to start hiring interns and doing all these different things. But before we get too much further, would you mind giving us a gear recommendation for our listeners? So this is an easy one for me. Probably anybody that's skied with me before, a micro puff jacket is my favorite piece of gear. It's comfortable. A lot of them are kind of cool looking too. You can even wear them. I'm a big enough of a mountain dork that I wear mine out in San Francisco on Saturday night. But um, yeah, a micro puff jacket is fantastic. And uh, I work with Heli Hansen. And they just made a new one. Uh, it, maybe it's just a reinvented one called the Verglass Insulator Down Jacket. And it's fantastic. It's got small baffles. It's not super thick, but it's not too thin. It's down, and it's just down all over. It's down from the collar all the way down to the waistband and then all the way down to your wrists. And it's just a fantastic piece. It has two simple zips. But what I love about it is it just, it's down so it compresses to nothing. You know, it compresses to the size of a baseball and weighs nothing. And so it's a great emergency piece, too. It's, it's something that I'll often, on a warmer day, still bring, and I'll just smash it down to the bottom of my pack. So if somebody got hurt or if I got hurt or if you know, the weather changed, I've got this great warm layer that you just uh, can't beat it. And it layers so well. It's just 
micro puff jacket, man. That's what you want. Excellent. We will be sure to throw up that item on our website, mtnmeister.com under your Meister profile page. So thank you for that. To kind of wrap things up, you know, you've had a unique career starting with molecular biology at UC Berkeley, <laughs> moving to the MCATs and to the ski bombing, and now to snowbrains.com. So what has been the biggest challenge that you've faced throughout that endeavor? I feel like we touched on it already a bit. For me, it really feels like the biggest challenge has been how to make it financially work. So when I was in college, you know, I, I worked for the Department of Health Services and, and made very little money with them. And right after school, I, I worked full time for them. And that, that was kind of the thing, but I couldn't ski enough. So then I switched to full ski bumming, which was taking six months off a year and skiing only and uh, living on $10 a day. That was the key. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I would do carpentry and bartending in the summertime. And uh, I would just work my tail off all summer for six months and then, you know, roll that right in. So I did that for the first three or four seasons. Yeah, I mean, I guess I shouldn't get into so many examples about myself, but I think for me, that's been the biggest challenge, you know, which eventually evolved into becoming a professional skier and making money from skiing. I got into mountain guiding. So that was a big thing for me. I I would guide uh, mountaineering about five months a year. And that was great as well. And the money was pretty good because you usually lived in free, crappy employee housing with a bunch of other smelly <laughs> guides. That, that was good. And then, uh, yeah, it just, just keeps evolving, you know. And I guess the takeaway is that it, it's hard to have a lifestyle that you really, really love and enjoy and still make some money. But I had a friend once say, and I, I think trenches is a bold, maybe nasty word, but if you stay in the trenches long enough, something's going to work out. Mm. And so uh, that, that would be, I don't know if this was meant to be a message, but that would maybe be my message to listeners is, you know, if you do have a passion, you know, whatever it may be, if you really stick in the trenches and stick with it and find a way to make it work, I think eventually an opportunity is going to present itself that, uh, that you can take advantage of and, and, and make it work for the long term. Because a lot of us, when we have a passion like this, it's, it's not for a year or two. It's, it's for life. Yeah, definitely. And we talked about there's always failures and everything. And actually, when Ben and I were starting up this podcast, it didn't even start as a podcast. It started as yeah. three other things. And then we're like, well, we're pretty good at talking. So let's give this a try, and and this is where we are now. So we're pretty happy about that. Absolutely, and you enjoy yourself along the way. Maybe you're a little nervous and worry about the future, but when everything all works out, then you realize, oh, wow, I've spent the last 15 years of my life really enjoying myself. Yeah, and it's neat to talk to other people who have a different perspective. You know, As we spoke of, people who are doctors and are lawyers, Mm -hmm. especially my mountain clients. It's always 50-year-old men having a midlife crisis, who uh, you know need to get out, and they realize, oh, I forgot to live my life. When they talk to us, they they always think, they always tell you, you know, I'm really happy you did that for yourself because uh, I wish maybe that I had done something like that. Very great. Well, thank you so much, Miles, for joining us. We really enjoyed talking to you. This was very inspiring, especially toward the end. Yeah, great talking with you guys too. This was very fun. I've had a smile the whole time. Meister fans, hope you enjoyed that episode with Miles Clark. Russell, why don't you tell them about what we're doing with Instagram? So listeners, I want to describe a big mistake I made. In the summer of 2010, I actually climbed Kilimanjaro. That was not the mistake. That was awesome, and I encourage anyone else to go out there and try it if they have the opportunity. But my big mistake was when I was on the summit after six days of hiking and exhausting 10 hours a day, And I get to the summit and I don't have my phone. I can't take an Instagram photo. At that moment, I felt like a mountain meister. And I know you have 
moments when you feel like a Mountain Meister. So make sure you take that Instagram photo and tag Mountain Meister. We're really interested what you're doing. Yeah, we want to see what everybody's up to. So get outside. The weather's great. Join us next time on Mountain Meister when we have Brody Levin. Brody is Solomon's first four-season athlete and has some great stories to tell us. Mm-hmm.